ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, December the 12th. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Attempts to forge an historic deal to phase out fossil fuels at this year's United Nations climate talks in Dubai are hanging by a thread after a draft agreement watered down the language about them. The updated draft text was released overnight, sparking immediate anger from Pacific Island nations worried about the effects of global warming. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer is in Dubai. It's the final frantic days of COP28 and the youngest member of Australia's delegation, a three-month-old girl, sleeps in a pram, oblivious to the tension around. Her mother is Frankie Muscovich, a sustainability expert at the Property Council. Apart from reminding everyone why they're here, uh, like she's literally the embodiment of the future, everyone's uh, coming up to me saying I feel instantly calm (laughs) when I have a look at her. It's obviously a very stressful environment right now. Unlike her daughter, she's fully aware of the stakes at play. It's coming to the pointy end. There's obviously some intransigence from certain countries that don't want the mention of fossil fuels, so I think it's all to play for. Those stakes were raised higher last night when a draft agreement was released by the summit's organisers. Any reference to phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels was omitted. In its place was a reference to reducing both the consumption and production of fossil fuels. COP28 President, the UAE Sultan Al-Jabbar, told delegates the ball was now in their court. Dear delegates, we have a text and we need to agree on the text. The time for discussion is coming to an end. The time to decide is now. He acknowledged the differences in views between countries, but said limiting global warming had to remain their North Star. We must still close many gaps. We don't have time to waste. We must deliver an outcome that respects the science and that keeps 1.5 within reach. Despite his upbeat tone, many poorer and more vulnerable countries were dismayed at the changes. Among them was Cedric Schuster, the Minister for Natural Resources and Environment in Samoa. If we do not have strong mitigation outcomes at this COP, this will be the COP where 1.5 would have died. We will not sign our gift certificate. We cannot sign on on to text that does not have strong commitments on phasing out fossil fuels. Chief among those resisting a phase out of fossil fuels is the group of major oil producers known as OPEC. Earlier yesterday, Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen took the unusual step of singling out the ringleader. So we've engaged in very good faith knowing that there are countries that respectfully, I say, have a different view. Saudi Arabia, for example, is on the public record is having a very different view. I've engaged with the Saudi Arabian minister. Richie Merzian is the international director at the Smart Energy Council. The former Australian government climate negotiator says those pushing for a breakthrough on fossil fuels at COP28 are facing an uphill task. We know where the big sticking point is and it's around energy, specifically whether we phase down or we phase out unabated or full fossil fuels. This is Daniel Mercer in Dubai reporting for AM. Billions of dollars in infrastructure projects could be under threat because there aren't enough workers and construction materials. The warning comes from the nation's infrastructure advisory agency, which says Australia faces a shortfall of more than 200,000 workers in key materials like steel and concrete. Gavin Coote reports. In the race to meet a growing population and shift to a greener economy, there are plenty of new houses, energy projects and road and rail links that are needed. 
Infrastructure Australia's Chief Executive Adam Kopp says the challenge is enormous. Over the next five years, Australia is planning to deliver over $230 billion in major public infrastructure, uh, 1.2 million new homes and 400% more investment in clean energy infrastructure. Unfortunately, we do not have the people or the materials to turn that ambition into a reality. Infrastructure Australia's annual market capacity report has found there are only 177,000 workers in the system and more than twice that number are needed. And it's not just workers in short supply. So we are seeing issues with steel imports. So steel has increased 20% over the last two years um, and timber has increased at a, a similar amount. We're also starting to see the quarried materials like rock and sand and other inputs to create cement are also starting to um, move into short supply. Uh, So governments need to build domestic capacity in terms of materials, but also domestic capacity in terms of skills. While workforce and material shortages have persisted since the height of the pandemic, John Davies from the Australian Constructors Association says it's not going to get any better unless there's serious change. Because we've seen with the infrastructure pipeline review that there are no easy choices on the demand side. We can't just cut back on housing because there's a housing crisis. Even with the migration review, we've got half a million people coming into the country, so you can't stop building schools, hospitals, roads. Geopolitical risk is increasing, so we can't cut back on defence. And then to add to all of that, we are struggling to meet our decarbonisation targets, so you can't cut back on new energy infrastructure. So there is no answer there from a demand side. So we look at the supply side. Well, the migration tweaks that that are being talked about are not really going to have any substantial impact one way or another. So the only way that we can address this issue is by focusing on becoming more productive and doing more with the resources we already have. And while Australia's major cities will bear the brunt of the workforce and material shortages, Adam Kopp from Infrastructure Australia says there are pressures in regions too. So those include Murray in New South Wales, the mid-north coast in New South Wales, Um, the Northern Territory outback in Northern Territory, uh, Central Queensland and the Riverina in New South Wales. So there's a a range of investments occurring there. A lot of them are utilities like energy projects. And the the issue is not just that it's a large amount of growth, but it's a very large increase in growth, um, a a super normal amount of growth uh, in investment going forward. Infrastructure Australia is also calling for more investment in science, technology, engineering and maths education and retention measures to keep people in the construction industry. That report from Gavin Koo and Matthew Doran. The federal government's mid-year budget update will be released tomorrow and it will show there's been at least $10 billion in either cuts or spending changes. It comes as the government tries to show it's doing its bit to reduce inflation and ease cost of living pressures. The Finance Minister is Katie Gallagher and she joined me earlier. Minister, what's included in this almost $10 billion in cuts and spending changes? So this is almost $10 billion that we have found across the budget. Um, That's included in that is some of the infrastructure savings that uh, Minister King has found, but there's other savings on top of that. And it's all about trying to get the budget in much better shape so that we can find room for other spending priorities. Uh, We've done this in the October budget. We did it in May. And the savings that we've found in this budget will bring it to a total of almost $50 billion across the forward estimates. Last financial year, there was a budget surplus. The Treasurer seems to be talking down the chances of a second. You're forecasting a $14 billion deficit this financial year. 
Is that expected deficit going to be lower than that or might there be perhaps even a surprise surplus? Uh, well, I think the Treasurer has made it clear that we won't be um, forecasting a a surplus in my EFO. Um, you know, we are working hard to get the budget in much better shape and it's not only our savings, but it's also looking at how we bank some of the revenue uh, to make sure that we are, you know, doing what we can to put downward pressure on inflation, get the budget in much better shape and find room for other spending priorities. Uh, and that's been our approach since October. I mean, obviously that would help you know, sort of paying down some of the debt that we've inherited as well. Um, so our focus is really on making sure, you know, we're being fiscally responsible in this environment when inflation is high and repairing the budget we inherited. Um, it's really important. You touched on inflation. Many voters are feeling cost of living pressures. Will there be new relief measures in next year's budget or are you hoping that now that inflation is easing that won't be required? Well, we keep a watching eye on all of this. Um, obviously, we've got our $23 billion worth of cost of living measures that are flowing out across the economy now. They're targeted and they're timed uh, so as not to add to the inflation challenge. Uh, but we've made it clear that we'll always um, monitor um, the economic circumstances of the time and make decisions accordingly. So um, this is this MyEFO is more of an economic update. Um, you know, it's straightforward in that sense. Uh, but we'll obviously keep a watching eye on on you know what we need to do to make sure that we are easing the pressure on households where we can, but not adding to the inflation challenge as it moderates. The May budget showed the federal government was hoping to save $74 billion over 10 years by curbing the growth in the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now that the government is going to split the costs with the states of providing more disability supports outside the NDIS, does that mean that those expected savings are going to disappear? Well, the, the numbers that are factored into our budget is slowing down the growth of the NDIS. So it is actually continuing to increase in expenditure across um, the uh, short, the forward estimates and the medium term. Uh, but we'll work through with states and territories around what's called foundation supports um, and, and work that through. And when we finalise that, that will be reflected in the budget. But the significant um, you know, easing or slowing of the growth is really important uh, that we achieve that. And that's the target is to get it to 8% growth as opposed to the 14% it's been currently growing at. Sure, but the foundation supports and the money now that's going to be set aside from that, that's going to eat into the proposed forecast saving of $74 billion over 10 years? Well, uh, there will be costs associated with foundation supports um, when they, that is finalised and they will be reflected in the budget. But as, as I said, we are expecting to spend more on the NDIS every single year going forward. What we are trying to do is moderate the growth in the scheme. Um, so part of our focus on getting the budget in better shape is so that we can make room uh, for the spending that we are going to need to do, whether it be in the NDIS or defence or servicing the, the debt, um, which is, you know, a significant um, cost on the budget now. That's all part of our fiscal strategy. If I could just turn to the climate talks in Dubai, is the federal government disappointed that it looks like the conference is not going to come up with a deal that has strong language in it about phasing out of fossil fuels? Well, I think there's uh, more work to be done, obviously, through the night and today about um, where 
COP28 lands. But I guess from the government's point of view, we want, you know, a strong statement But uh, and Minister Bowen's been leading that, but in, it doesn't change the work that we're doing here, which is to, you know, shift our energy grid into uh, more renewables and to make sure that we're seizing the opportunity that comes uh, with that transition. Uh, and you've seen that in the policies we've rolled out, including recently with the capacity investment scheme. Sure. But is the government disappointed that it looks like the strong language won't be happening? Well, let's just see what happens, Sabra. I think there's still talks going on. Obviously, um, you know, Minister Bowen and Minister McAllister are there representing Australia. There's more work to be done. We've taken a position. Uh, We'll see where COP28 lands. All right. Minister, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you very much. And that's Katie Gallagher, the Federal Finance Minister. Every day, hundreds of people battling homelessness have their calls for help go unanswered with support services stretched beyond capacity. That's what data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare shows. As Matt Bamford reports, it's forcing providers to make impossible decisions. In the midst of a housing crisis, Paul Turton is seeing more people making increasingly difficult choices as they're pushed to the brink of homelessness. It's really about some of the basics. It's about food clothing, it's choosing to pay rent over buying food. He's from Vincent Care, which provides homelessness support services across Victoria. In recent months, he's noticed a new group of people seeking help. People who've never come to homelessness support services before in their lives are now presenting because they can't pay rent uh, and they can't pay the bills. We're seeing it in our assistance centres and our assistance centres are being overwhelmed by the demand, and it's demand we haven't seen before across St Vincent de Paul and Victoria. As his staff struggle to meet the growing need, there's a toll on them too. The word distressed was used um, in a recent conversation with someone from the Bensdale Centre because they want to meet the demand, they want to support people, but we've just running out of resources. It's a growing problem across the country, according to the latest data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. On average, last financial year, more than 72,000 Australians were supported by a homelessness service every day. But nearly 300 requests for help went unassisted each day, the majority of them women. Kate Colvin is CEO of advocacy body Homelessness Australia. The numbers of people turned away is is really alarming and um, what we need is more homelessness support because homelessness services are the first responses really in the housing crisis and right now um, too many people are not getting the help they need to escape homelessness. The number of people already homeless when they sought help jumped by more than 5%, while those sleeping rough when they first asked for support rose by 17%. However, Kate Colvin says there's no guarantee they'll get immediate relief. So there might be, you know, a young person who's fleeing violence in the home um, and if there's not enough refuge beds, then, you know, that bed, available bed might go to someone who's 16 and someone who's 18 gets turned away without the refuge bed that they need. Or if um, it's women and children fleeing family violence, you know, if they've got a car, perhaps then the worker will have to choose the available accommodation for someone who doesn't have a car. She says it's a clear sign the sector needs more investment. The federal government's funding for homelessness services is not actually even keeping pace with inflation. So the upcoming um, mid-year economic 
financial statement is an opportunity for the federal government to respond to this emergency. But we also need the next federal budget to uh, make an investment in homelessness support and and in social housing. The federal government's 10-year national housing and homelessness plan is expected to be released next year. Matt Bamford reporting. Members of the Stolen Generations in the Northern Territory are dismayed they still don't know when they'll receive money from a class action they won against the federal government in April. Their legal firm is holding the $50 million settlement in a trust and asking the Indigenous claimants to be patient while it carefully checks who's eligible for payment. Jane Barden reports. Tiwi Islander Leonie Carpenter had hoped by now she'd have money from the Stolen Generations class action. I wanted to, you know, do my father's headstone and get his grave all tidied up and stuff as well. Her father Leon was two when he was forcibly taken from his parents on Bathurst Island of Darwin to the Garden Point Catholic Mission for Mixed Race Children on neighbouring Melville Island. She's one of about 2,000 claimants waiting for shine lawyers to distribute payments from the successful class action against the federal government. It was taking too long and everyone's just getting a bit frustrated now, like, what's going on? Basil Campbell, whose parents were taken from Elliot and Barlula to Garden Point in 1938, is also worried. I feel let down because it's taken so long and every time you ring shine up, they tell you, oh, next month, next month, I have cancer. Um, once I die, my grandkids don't get nothing. So I'd like to spend some money on them before I go. Yvonne Dunn runs a social media group for about 600 Garden Point descendants. She says many have suffered intergenerational trauma because their parents were brutalised, poorly educated and forced into arranged marriages. A lot of them were sexually abused by the priest when they got married to mom. They were very damaged and very hard and, you know, they turned to alcohol for escape from reality and they flogged their wives and a lot of domestic violence come from that. Shine Lawyers has divided the claimants into three groups, descendants of removed children, siblings and carers and their children. Well, I'm very disappointed with the categories that they put into place. I think they've overcomplicated it. Now they're stuck because they have to do all this research because, you know, there's no documents around. The Law Council of Australia says distribution of class action settlement funds can take years if losses suffered by claimants are varied and complex. Shine Lawyer's Joint Head of Class Action, Vicky Ancelatus, says the settlement should be resolved soon. Well, it will be sometime in the new year. And while we're not trying to make it too complex, we obviously have to determine who's eligible so we don't end up paying money out to people that are not entitled to it. Some of the claimants were worried that because Shine has to determine who gets what between the three groups, that that's complicated the process. Why was it decided that they should be in three different groups that's, that's how the claim was brought by us. There's a recognition that there's different types of claimants. We always conduct substantial due diligence and research and talk to stakeholders before we commence these types of proceedings. So the three groups were born out of that initial research and due diligence. Shine says the interest being earned on the $50 million pool will also be divided between the claimants. Jane Barden reporting, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Did you know there's a cyber attack reported in Australia every six minutes? There are criminal groups trying to disrupt our lives and steal our data. 
but it's countries like China and Russia that are becoming more aggressive in targeting Australian businesses with government secrets. Today, Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX, Catherine Manstead, on why the threat is increasing and how we can protect ourselves. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.